admired the perfection of her features and the happy smile she always wore. Beyond that, he admired her loyalty to the king and the fact that her lips would never have uttered the slightest reproach against the man stolen from her by Ania, the dancing girl from the Caucasus. The king looked at her with sadness in his eyes. It is you, my dear. I was talking with Josa about the Nazarene. He will take a letter to him, inviting him to come. I have offered to share my kingdom with him. The queen nodded. An escort should accompany Josa, to ensure that nothing happens on the journey, and to ensure also that he returns safely with the Nazarene. I will take three or four men. That will be enough, Josa said. I hope, my lady, to convince Jesus to return with me. I will take swift horses, and will send you and my lord the news when I reach Jerusalem. I shall leave at dawn. The fire began to lick at the pews as smoke filled the nave with darkness. Four figures dressed in black hurried toward a lateral chapel. A fifth man, humbly dressed, hovering in a doorway near the high altar, wrung his hands. The high wail of sirens reached a crescendo outside, fire trucks responding to the alarm. In a matter of seconds, firefighters would burst into the cathedral, and that meant another failure. The man rushed down from the altar, motioning his brothers to come to him. One of them kept running toward the chapel, while the others shrank back from the fire that was beginning to surround them. Time had run out. The fire had come out of nowhere and progressed faster than they'd calculated. The man trying so desperately to fulfill their mission was enveloped in flames. He burned without a scream, without a sound. The others retreated and raced behind their guide to a side door, slipping outside at the same instant the water from the fire hoses poured into the cathedral. They never saw the man hiding among the shadows of one of the pulpits, a silencer-equipped pistol at his side. Once they were gone, he came down from the pulpit, touched a spring hidden in the wall, and disappeared. Marco Valloni took a drag off his cigarette, and the smoke mixed in his lungs with the smoke from the fire. He'd come outside while the firefighters finished putting out the embers that were still glowing in and around the right side of the high altar. The piazza was closed off with police blockades, and the carabinieri were holding back the curious and the concerned, all craning their necks to try to see what had happened in the cathedral. At that hour of the evening, Turin was a beehive of people, desperate to learn whether the holy shroud had been damaged. Marco had asked the reporters covering the fire to try to keep the crowds calm. The shroud had been unscathed. What he hadn't told them was that someone had died in the flames. He still didn't know who. Another fire. Fire seemed to plague the old cathedral. But Marco didn't believe in coincidences, and the Turin Cathedral was a place where too many accidents happened. Robbery attempts and, within recent memory, three fires. In the first one, which occurred after the Second World War, investigators had found the bodies of two men incinerated by the flames. The autopsy determined that they were both about twenty-five and that, despite the fire, they had been killed by gunshot. And last, a truly gruesome finding. Their tongues had been surgically cut out. But why? And who had shut them? No one had ever been able to find out.
The case was still open, but it had gone cold. Neither the faithful nor the general public knew that the Shroud had spent long periods of time outside the cathedral over the last hundred years. Maybe that was why it had been spared the consequences of so many accidents. A vault in the Banco Nazionale had been the Shroud's place of safekeeping. The relic was taken out of it only to be displayed on special occasions, and then only under the strictest security. But despite all the security, the shroud had been exposed to danger, real danger, more than once. It had been moved back to the cathedral only days ago, in preparation for the unveiling of extensive refurbishments. Marco still remembered the fire of April 12, 1997. How could he forget, since it was the same night, or early morning, he'd been celebrating his retirement with his colleagues in the art crimes department. He was fifty then and he'd just been through open-heart surgery. His wife, Paula, had insisted that he retire. She sugared the pill by reminding him that he had gone as high in the art crimes department as he could go. He was the director, and that he could honorably end a brilliant career and devote himself to enjoying life. The night before the fire, despite Paula's protests, he'd gone out to dinner with his friends. By daybreak, they were still drinking. These were the same people he'd been working with for 14, 15 hours a day for the last 20 years, tracking down the mafias that trafficked in artworks, unmasking forgeries, and protecting, so far as was humanly possible, Italy's artistic heritage. The Art Crimes Department was a special agency under both the Ministry of the Interior and the Ministry of Culture. It was a unique collection of police officers mixed with a good number of archaeologists, historians, experts in medieval art, modern art, religious art. He had given it the best years of his life. And he had continued giving after the cathedral fire of April 12, 1997. He had told Paula he was not retiring after all, but not to worry because he would redefine his job as director. He would embrace bureaucracy he wasn't going to be travelling anymore or out in the field doing investigations. He was just going to be a bureaucrat. It was the fire in the cathedral that had changed his mind about staying. He was convinced that it hadn't been accidental, no matter how often he told the press it was. And now, here he was, investigating another fire in the Turin Cathedral. Less than two years ago, he'd been called in to investigate another robbery attempt, one of many over the years. The thief had been caught almost by accident. Although it was true he hadn't any cathedral property on him, it was surely just because he hadn't had time to pull off the job. The thief had no tongue. It had been surgically removed. Nor did he have any fingerprints. The tips of his fingers were scarred over from burns. The man, so far as the investigation was concerned, was a person without a country, without a name, and he was now rotting in the Turin jail. He'd remained obdurate and unresponsive through interrogation after interrogation. They'd never managed to get anything out of him. Antonino, one of Marco's team, interrupted his musings. Boss, the cardinal's here. He just got in from Rome, and he's really upset by all this. He wants to see you. Marco entered the cathedral through a side door bearing a small sign designating the church offices. A young priest, somewhere in his early thirties, approached and extended his hand. His handshake was firm. I'm Padre Yves. Marco Valoni.
Yes, I know. If you'll come with me, his eminence is waiting to see you. The priest opened a heavy door that led into a large, luxurious office, panelled in dark wood. The cardinal's normally friendly face was clouded with concern. Have a seat, Signor Valoni, please. Thank you, Your Eminence. Tell me what's happened. Do we know who died? We don't know for certain who the man is or what happened, sir. It appears that there was a short circuit due to the renovations, and that's what started the fire. Again? Yes, Your Eminence, again. And if you'll allow us, sir, I want to investigate this thoroughly. I would ask for your full cooperation. Of course, Signor Valoni, of course. We are entirely at your disposal for any questions you may have, as we have been in the past. Investigate whatever and wherever you need. What's happened is a catastrophe. Truly, one person is dead, and the flames almost reach the holy shroud. I don't know what we would do if it had been destroyed. Your Eminence, the shroud... I know, Signor Valoni. I know what you are going to say. Radiocarbon dating has determined that the shroud cannot be the cloth that our Lord was buried in. But for millions of believers, the shroud is authentic, regardless of what the Carbon-14 says, and the Church has allowed it to be worshipped. And, of course, there are those scientists who cannot explain the figure that we take to be Christ's. Furthermore, excuse me, Your Eminence, I had no intention of calling the religious importance of the Shroud into question. Ah, then what? I wanted to ask you whether anything out of the ordinary had happened in the last few days, the last few months, anything, no matter how insignificant it might seem.